0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's historical group lecture. very pleased to welcome back Wind Commander Jeff Jefford, who last lectured to the um, historical group here in 2001. Jeff joined the RAF in 1959 as a pilot, but then was encouraged to see the light and become a navigator. His flying experience included tours on Canberras and Vulcans, and also instructing at RAF Finningley. He then had a number of ground postings and took early retirement in 1991 to read history at London University. You probably know him as an author, he has three books to his credit and he's a very long-term member and contributor to uh, Cross and Cockade, the Society of First War Air Historians. He's also uh, been on the committee of the RAF Historical Society since 1998 and currently edits their journal. Jeff, very pleased to see you again, and we look very much forward to hearing your lecture on pilot training in the Royal Flying Corps and Royal Air Force.
1: Thank you, Peter. Evening, gentlemen. RAF Historical Society, if anybody wants to join, I have some application forms. Um, I'll start with an apology. I lack the discipline to ad-lib this. I wander off on tangents. We'll be here all night. So I'm going to read this. Uh, that's bad news. The good news is it means we won't be here for more than an hour. Uh, when I was invited to provide the society with an account of flying training in World War One, it rang a bell. And after rummaging through my souvenirs, I came up with this. As long ago as January 1917, the then director of air organization, Sefton Branker, lectured this society on the teaching of flying. And the proceedings were published in the spring edition of your journal. Branker confessed that he had never actually taught anyone to fly himself and that he was no expert in the techniques involved, so that a better title would have been Training in Military Aviation because he intended to discuss the provision of competent, rounded military aviators, not just boys with wings. Now, much of what I have to say reflects what Branca said, although we can sharpen the perspective a little with the benefit of hindsight, and more importantly, a great deal happened in the training game in the 18 months after he delivered his lecture, so we need to consider those developments. I should also invite a couple of caveats. I'm going to confine this presentation to the RFC and RAF, because there isn't time to deal with the comparatively small RNAs, But that said, until late 1917, the Navy actually made a rather better fist of training its pilots than the Army did. And for much the same reason, the time constraint, I'm going to deal only with pilots, which is a shame because observers were people too, but they were, as ever, marginalized, and they only get mentioned in passing. Observers warrant a whole presentation of themselves, of course, perhaps another day. We need to again begin with a little prehistory. The Air Battalion of the Royal Engineers was set up in 1911, and uh, an officer who wished to fly with it had first to acquire a Royal Aero Club certificate, and this is Hugh Dowdings from 1913. When the certificate was first introduced uh, to qualify, one had in the presence of an official observer to make three five-kilometer flights in a closed circuit landing each time within 150 metres of a designated spot with the engine switched off. Now, to reflect the increasing capabilities of aeroplanes, the requirements of the test were periodically revised. And from February of 1911, a pilot had to make only two 5-kilometre flights, but they were now to be flown as five figures of eight, around two posts set not more than 500 metres apart. A third sortie was still required, the object of this one being to attain an altitude of at least 50 metres, and all three landings had to be made within 50, not 150 metres, of a nominated point. Now, while there were a number of commercial schools to choose from, those run by Bristol's at Brooklands and Lark Hill did the lion's share of pre-war pilot training. And by August of 1914, Bristol's had trained 309 pilots, 46% of the 664 who had learned to fly at pre-war British schools, many but not all of them being soldiers or sailors. The various flying schools operated a variety of aeroplanes, but statistically you were most likely to learn to fly on a Bristol box kite. Whoever you flew with, and regardless of the type of aeroplane, acquiring your ticket would have set you back £75, which, applying the increase in RPI since then, would be about £6,500 today. So that was quite a serious undertaking. And once you had your ticket, you applied to be attached to the air battalion, and once you were in, you could reclaim the £75 that you had invested to get your Aero Club ticket and pay back the loan from Mum. Sub- subsequently stationed at either Lark Hill or South Farnborough, you were then supposed to undergo a course of instruction in military aviation in those branches of aviation which are of special value for military purposes. That, at least, is what Jack Seeley, the then Under-Secretary of State for War, announced to the House in October 1911. But this was very early days, so it was more of a declaration of intent than an attempt to summarize a syllabus. The first aviation course actually got underway in April 1912, and it was still going on when British military aviation was upgraded from battalion to corps status with the creation of the Royal Flying Corps in May of 1912. Part of the new establishment was the Central Flying School, which soon began to impose some structure on training. The first aviation course actually got underway in April. The first CFS course ran from August to December of 1912, and it began with 19 officers and several more joined later. Folk who already had a ticket were simply checked out by doing a few straights and circuits. Those who lacked a certificate did the same with an instructor until they went solo and eventually acquired their tickets. Geoffrey Salmond was a student on number two course, and there was a case in point. This is the Royal Aero Club file card registering that he qualified for certificate number 421 on a farman at the CFS on the 13th of February 1913. Once they had their tickets, everyone was turned loose to do a number of 20- to 30-minute local flights before being allowed off on cross-countries. There was a good deal of practical experience in the workshops, about 50 hours of formal classroom time, and, of course, examinations. To begin with, the school was short of aeroplanes, mostly Farman's and BEs, and feeling its way, but a formal syllabus covering the theory of flight, map reading, strength of materials, military and naval history, practical work on Nome and Renault engines, and the rigging and repair of airframes had been defined and published in time for number four course, which began in September of 1913. At the same time, the school had also spelled out the tests that were to be passed. And while it was relatively easy to state the standards that had to be demonstrated in the context of academic and technical studies, it was less easy to be specific in terms of practical aviation. Indeed, there was relatively little in the way of formal instruction, because no one really knew enough about flying to go teaching anyone else. It was largely a question of flying as often as you could, and learning from your own mistakes. So the requirements were, had to be, pretty broad brush. At the same time that the school had spelled out the test that we passed, you had to have logged an adequate number of flying hours. And how vague is that? During which you had to demonstrate that you had a reasonable chance of pulling off a forced landing in the quite likely event of engine failure by gliding down dead stick from at least 1,000 feet you had to have demonstrated that you had a reasonable chance of not getting lost by venturing at least 40 miles away and finding your way back home, and you had to have flown a reasonably hot ship, one that would do better than 55 miles per hour. So to recap, in the pre-war RFC, a pilot would need to get his Aero Club ticket, typically on a commercial Bristol box kite at Lark Hill or Brooklyn's, Having cleared that hurdle, he could apply for a transfer to the RFC, at which point he could get his 75 quid back. He would then be attached to the CFS to undergo an academic course while flying a variety of aeroplanes, notably trainers like Farmans and the more capable B2. Towards the end of the four-month course, he would be issued with his flying certificate. Now, I showed you Geoffrey Salmon's Aero Club card, which was dated the 13th of February, This is his RFC flying certificate, which is dated the 6th of March, just three weeks later, and five weeks before the course actually ended on the 16th of April. So we can represent the pre-war training sequence like this. Within days of war having been declared, a reserve aeroplane squadron was set up at Farnborough, and in November this became number one when the war office took over the civil aerodrome at Brooklands to become number two. Meanwhile, another military flying school had been set up at Netheravon in September, and in January 1915, this moved to Shoreham to become number three reserve school, and so it went on. These reserve aeroplane squadrons, RASs, were all intended to function as elementary flying schools. In addition to practical flying to Aero Club Certificate Standard, they were also to provide all of the associated theoretical and technical ground instruction. The significance of the certificate, incidentally, reflected the fact that the Royal Aero Club was the only body empowered to license a British pilot, military as well as civilian. Now, having completed his elementary course at an RAS, a trainee pilot was intended to proceed to the CFS. Some continued to do so, but the numbers involved soon exceeded Upavon's capacity, and in January of 1915, it was decided that service squadrons that had just yet to cross the channel would have to take up the slack. In effect, these potentially operational units were to act as advanced flying training schools. At the time, this innovation involved just numbers 1, 7 and 8 squadrons. The others were already in France. It was anticipated that trainees would spend up to two months flying ideally one type of aircraft rather than gaining experience on a variety of different aeroplanes which had been the favoured practice in the past. They never really achieved that. By this means, the number of pilots on the strength of a service squadron increased progressively until it was perhaps 50% above establishment. At that point, the surplus was detached to form the nucleus of a completely new unit, leaving the parent squadron to be mobilized, that is, to be equipped with an operational type before being packed off to France. The cycle then repeated itself. And it did that for the next two years. So some quite complex genealogies were established Eight squadron, for instance, begat 13 squadron, which spawned 22 squadron, which provided the nucleus for 45 squadron, which passed on its genes to 64 squadron, by which time it was August of 1916. Now, the major weakness in this system was its use, really its misuse, of service squadrons. The War Office was well aware of the limitations which this might impose, but considered that these just have to be accepted. The main drawback, and one which had certainly been foreseen, was that imposing a major flying training commitment on units which were supposed to be preparing for active service might well overload them. Nevertheless, whilst these squadrons were still supposed to practice operational techniques, it was ruled that where conflict arose, priority was to be given to pilot training. And as a result of that policy, tactical role training and the instruction of observers were to become increasingly secondary considerations. In essence, the... Training philosophy adopted by the RFC in January of 1915 represented an attempt to get a quart out of a proverbial pint pot, and that inevitably resulted in a short measure. Now, while this approach did serve to sustain a flow of new pilots, it became increasingly difficult to maintain a satisfactory balance between quantity and quality. The problem grew worse as the war progressed because the introduction of increasingly sophisticated airplanes, equipment and techniques meant the amount that a new pilot needed to assimilate grew inexorably. But they weren't being taught much of this new stuff. They were obliged to play catch-up when they eventually arrived in France, and the width of the gap between what they actually knew and what they needed to know gradually increased with the passage of time, much to the frustration of their COs in France. The next significant change was the establishment during 1915 at Denham, of the first of eventually four RFC cadet battalions to undertake the basic military training of direct entrant potential officers and the commissioning of RFC, NCOs, and other ranks. In short, the idea was to turn one of these into one of these. And Meanwhile, we need to take a bit of a detour because faced with the influx of increasingly inadequate pilots, folk in France have begun to take matters into their own hands and although it was eventually forthcoming after the event, without first obtaining formal war office sanction, Captain Thomas Hubbard, a graduate of that first CFS course back in 1912, had set up, largely on his own initiative, a flying school at Le Crotoy, Flying Longhorns and Caudrons, this school operated throughout much of 1915, providing remedial training for pilots who were considered to need it, and permitting about 50 observers and a handful of air mechanics to gain their Aero Club certificates before being sent home to complete their training as new military pilots. It's not always possible to have a, an officially recognized examiner on hand, but the Aero Club was content to accept an affidavit signed by the CO, and this one certified that Second Lieutenant Sholto Douglas, then an observer with two squadron, had passed the tests on the 2nd of June 1915. The club would be notified of this, whereupon it would provide its formal endorsement by registering the qualification on the same date. This is Douglas's Aero Club registration card, recording that he had indeed qualified for Certificate Number 1301, with effect from the 2nd of June, 1915. Things would begin, but only begin to improve, during 1916 as the system continued to evolve and expand Towards the end of the year, the cadet battalions were redesignated as wings, and as early as January, by which time there were 18 reserve airplane squadrons, the airplane was dropped from their titles, so they became simply reserve squadrons. And while they all continued to undertake elementary training, some of them also began to provide the advanced phase, or instruction in higher aviation, as it was known at the time. A more substantial innovation was the establishment of RFC schools of instruction, at Reading and Oxford. From early 1916, these began to make a significant contribution by providing a comprehensive ground-based foundation course in aviation technology. The syllabus covered aerodynamic theory, the construction and rigging of airframes, aero engines, wireless telegraphy, that's to say Morse, the machine gun, and much else. Nevertheless, HQRFC continued to complain about the capabilities of pilots being sent to France, and to tackle this problem, Lieutenant Colonel John Salmond was recalled from France to take charge of home-based training. Jack Salmond assumed command, now as a brigadier of 6th Brigade, on the 9th of March, and he soon began to get a grip. Within a fortnight, he had issued a clear statement of what was required to qualify as a pilot. From March 1916, a pilot had to have flown solo for a minimum of 15 hours. He had to have flown a service as distinct from a training aeroplane satisfactorily, which meant, in effect, he had managed to get a BE-2C up and down again without breaking it. He had to have made a cross-country flight of at least 60 miles, making two landings at RFC-supervised aerodromes en route. And he had to have climbed to 6,000 feet, stayed there for at least 15 minutes, before descending to land, engine off, touching down within a circle of 50 yards diameter. Yards now, not meters. And he had to have landed twice in the dark with the assistance of flares, although that requirement could be waived if delays would have in- been incurred by waiting for suitable conditions. Now, with hindsight, it's plain that this remarkably short list defined no more than a minimum standard It should be appreciated, however, that at the time it was considered to represent, and here I quote, a raising of the standard of the graduation test. Clearly, quantity was still taking priority over quality, and this was heavily underlined by the fact that the graduation standard still omitted any reference to tactical or operational skills. There's no mention here of combat maneuvering, indeed of maneuvering of any kind. Similarly, formation flying, cloud flying practical experience of bombing, gunnery, photography, WT work, were all considered to be non-essential. Pilots were encouraged to indulge in such activities, if time permitted. Unfortunately, it seldom did. In short, if the trainee pilot of early 1916 could get an aeroplane off the ground, keep it in the air, and then land again, with or without the engine on, he's ready for active service. At much the same time as the graduation standard was being raised, Three qualification certificates were introduced, these being additional to the Aero Club Certificate. Certificate A was a written examination on the theory of flight, RFC organization, artillery cooperation procedures, and so on. The papers were set by Commandant CFS. The exams were held under local arrangements at the headquarters of each training wing on Tuesdays. Certificate B involved tests of practical skills, aero engines, rigging, morse, machine guns firing, and the like. These were held at CFS on Tuesdays and at Reading and Oxford on Saturdays. And Certificate C were the flying tests, that 15-hour solo and so on, conducted in accordance with instructions issued locally by wing commanders. In effect, Certificate C simply involved progressive completion of those flying exercises. Certificates A and B had to be gained in that order, but the flying tests could be done at any time. Once he'd collected ticks in all three boxes, the new pilot was awarded his brevet, his flying certificate, by the CFS. Although by mid-1916, the flying certificate had morphed into the very similar graduation certificate. The war office was notified that he'd qualified, and shortly afterwards he would be gazetted as a flying officer, which at the time was an employment (coughs) grade, not a rank and once he'd been gazetted, and not before, he was entitled to wear his flying badge. And by the summer of 1916, the majority of trainee pilots were now passing through those new schools of instruction at Reading and Oxford, and the certification system was changed to reflect this. In June, certificates A and B were combined into a single certificate, which had to be obtained before commencing flying training, in effect as you completed that preparatory ground-based course at Oxford or Reading. Now, while an Aero Club ticket like this one had been a worthwhile uh, piece of paper when it was first introduced in 1910, subsequent advances in flying techniques had made it increasingly irrelevant, and it now represented only the first hurdle in the training sequence, and a rather low one at that. In fact, it was actually becoming counterproductive because it required about three-quarters of an hour to complete the test, and all other flying was often suspended while one was being undertaken cut down on what was now being described as a lamentable waste of time, it was suggested that while retaining the requirement to fly the course twice, the five figures of eight could be reduced to just two. When that was put to the Aero Club committee, it promptly acceded to that request. And that had been the thin end of a wedge. And since the RFC had long been adjudicating the test on its behalf, the Aero Club, still the sole official licensing authority, was on the point of relinquishing its jurisdiction over military pilots in any case recognizing that the RFC's graduation certificate reflected a far higher standard of competence than its own, the Royal Aero Club agreed to issue its ticket to any pilot who could produce evidence to show that it had been certified certified by the military. Now, at this stage, I think we need to stand back a little in order to see 1916 in perspective. Now, while Salmon's graduation standards and qualification certificates clearly indicated that there was a new hand on the tiller, it would take time for his new approach to percolate down through the system and for the necessary resources to be provided. So improvements were incremental rather than instant. And this can best be illustrated by a case study. This is Eric Lubbock. He went to France in 1914 as a lorry driver with the ASC, Service Corps. Commissioned in the field in 1915, he soon transferred to the RFC to fly as an observer. And having spent five months with five squadron, picking up an MC in the process he was posted home to become a pilot. He began his new career in January of 1916 with number no. 3 Reserve Squadron at Shoreham, where he went solo after 2 hours, 15 minutes, on Longhorns. Having put in some more time on Shorthorns to complete the elementary course, he was posted to Gosport to embark on his training in higher aviation on Avros and BEs with 22 Squadron. When 22 Squadron began to mobilise, the still-only part-trained Lubbock was passed on to its successor, 45 Squadron, and moving with it to Sedgeford. He passed his A and B certificates in May after a reset in Morse, so that just left certificate C ticking the practical flying boxes. He needed 15 hours solo, Eric had logged 28. A long cross country exercise, he'd done that on the 27th of April, he had to have landed twice in the dark, Eric had done that three times. And he needed time on a relatively high-performance aeroplane. Eric had by now flown the RAF-powered BE-2C, as distinct from the Renault, and the BE-12, both of which were classed as service types. So Headquarters 7th Wing told CFS, who issued its graduation certificate from the 22nd of May, 1916. Now we come to the interesting bit. Although Eric was not formally notified that he'd been graded as a flying officer until the 30th of June, he was locally authorised to put up his wings on the 6th. If you look closely, you can see that the flying badge has actually been painted on in the right-hand picture, one of a series that was taken when he was presented with his MC as an observer. And that's an early example of what we would call photoshopping, and it was not unusual. Now we come to the really interesting bit. Lubbock was now a fully qualified pilot, which meant that he was automatically regarded as being competent to instruct others. On the day that he put up his badge, he was made acting OCB flight, assigned six students, and before the day was out, he had sent one of them solo. Now, if that appears to be a case of the blind leading the blind, that would be because it's exactly what it was. But despite Salmon's new broom, this was par for the course in 1916. Albert Ball was another example. He gained his wings at Uphaven on the 22nd of January. But before being posted out to 13 Squadron in France, he spent three weeks with 22 Squadron at Gosport as an instructor. What did he know? Lubbock sent four more pupils off by themselves before his luck ran out after ten days when his next guy flew his first solo circuit successfully but lost control on his second and crashed after a two-turn spin. And so it went on. The accident rate was pretty horrendous. Those who gained their wings were posted to squadrons that were starting to mobilise or sent directly to France as replacements. Some of the latter may still have had no more than 30 hours under their belts before being committed to flying on operations. Those who were lucky enough to stay behind as instructors may not have been able to teach very much, but they were able to fly a lot and thus gain valuable, invaluable first-hand experience and thus confidence. Lubbock had actually logged more than 220 hours before he eventually went to France when 45 squadron was mobilized for active service at the end of 1916. And once the squadron began flying on ops, the CO Major Willie Reed, decided that three of his pilots were so incompetent that he was obliged to have them posted away. He was saying, in effect, that of 17 pilots that he took to France for whose training he had been personally responsible for overseeing, 18% were not fit for purpose. That was a pretty shocking confession to have to make, but it was not unusual. Many pilots took a while to get the hang of it on first arriving in France, and these are all incidents involving pilots of No. 45 Squadron in 1917. But they were not alone. So was there any good news in 1916? Yes. While there was clearly some way to go with respect to teaching the art of flying and the voice of the prophet, Smith Barry, would not be heard until the end of the year, Progress was being made in other fields. In 1916, the key role of the aeroplane, as it was throughout the war, was still artillery cooperation conducted by two-seaters. And that meant wireless and gunnery, gunnery for self-defense or for attack, if you were going to one of the squadrons that were beginning to specialize in the newfangled single-seater scouts. This was where Salmon's influence began to make a real difference. When he took over responsibility for practical WT training was largely in the hands of the COs of the reserve squadrons. But many of these folk were back in in the UK as majors, having earned their spurs as part of the first cohort of pilots to go to France in 1914. Wireless did not become a basic tool of the aviators' trade until the summer of 1915. And a lot of the COs of training units had little awareness of its significance because they'd come home from France before wireless made any impact. That being the case, wireless training tended to be afforded little priority. Salmon directed that from May 1916 onwards, units tasked with training in higher aviation were to have two aircraft fitted with transmitters. Each squadron was also to have three wireless operators to man a ground receiver station, and there was to be a dedicated AO, that's an assistant equipment officer, poorly named, he's a technical officer really, at each training wing headquarters to coordinate wireless activities down at squadron level. All pilots had to learn Morse at eight words per minute and synthetic training was introduced on the ground using an artillery target. It's a model, perhaps 10 feet square, of a piece of terrain wired with electric lamps and a means of producing little puffs of smoke to simulate the flashes of guns and the bursts of shells. Trainees were required to report the location of targets using a grid system and to estimate aiming corrections, converting these into clock code. Appropriate messages were then transmitted to the simulated battery using a silent Morse key, silent to simulate the conditions in a noisy open cockpit where the opera operator would be unable to hear the dits and dars that he was sending. Signal's training was eventually introduced at the elementary stage with Morse at six words per minute. Reserve squadrons were to have ten aircraft equipped with winches so that pilots would become familiar with having to wind out an aerial and, more importantly, wound it back in again. This approach, supplemented by appropriate lectures and building on the academic foundations being laid at Oxford and Reading, provided all pilots with a reasonable grasp of wireless techniques. Until the spring of 1916, gunnery training for pilots had been at much the same low level of intensity as wireless work, but the introduction of synchronising gears during the summer meant that this approach was no longer adequate. As well as continuing to need some familiarity with the Lewis gun, a pilot now had to be able to deal with the Vickers, and be introduced to the concept of aiming his whole aeroplane at the target. Responsibility for this fell to the machine gun school at Hythe, which ceased to train armourers, and since it was now to be exclusively concerned with aircrew, it was renamed the School of Aerial Gunnery. Observers were sent to Hythe for their courses, but the instruction of pilots was conducted remotely. Each advanced training squadron was provided with an NCO instructor, and each wing had a Hythe-trained pilot to act as the wing gunnery officer. Once the War Office had delegated control of the School of Aerial Gunnery to Headquarters Training Brigade, Salmond was able to implement a progressive system similar to that that he had already applied to wireless training. Theoretical and practical work on machine guns was introduced as early as the cadet wing stage, and that foundation was then reinforced at the schools of instruction and built on during elementary flying training. Each advanced training squadron was now required to maintain a 2 2 firing range. Clay pigeon shooting and machine gun practice on ground ranges was also introduced. That's a wiring diagram for a ground target, uh, an artillery target. And the Hithe gun camera began to be issued as they became available. Further tuition was provided by employing pilots with recent combat experience as visiting lecturers. And to reflect all of these developments, a new syllabus laying down the level of expertise that pupils had to be able to demonstrate in the fields of bombing signals and so on was published in November of 1916 and in December the practical flying tests were revised. The minimum number of solo hours needed to qualify for a flying badge was raised from 15 to 20 with the addition of further solo time on type for pilots destined to fly certain nominated aeroplanes. So with the improvements clearly becoming apparent by the end of 1916 we can move on into 1917. And on the face of it, the changes that occurred were simply reflections of the continuing expansion and rationalization of the existing training machine rather than indicating any fundamental changes. By the autumn of 1917, for instance, the cadet wings had all migrated to Hastings where they had now had the joint status of a brigade. The original schools of instruction at Reading and Oxford had been joined by others and they'd all been restyled as schools of military aeronautics reserve squadron had never really described the function of these units very precisely and in May of 1917 by which time there were more than 60 of them in the UK, they were restyled as training squadrons. And there were others in Canada and in Egypt and they all became training squadrons. Now while these changes have been largely cosmetic the nettle of practical flying training was about to be grasped. Now as we've seen, while some of those who had to teach the steadily expanding syllabus may have been, or like Lubbock gradually became relatively experienced pilots, few of them could be regarded as skilled instructors. As Robert Smith Barry put it, the flying instructors of 1916 were those pilots who were resting, those who were preparing to go overseas, and those who had shown themselves to be useless for anything else. The first two classes had other interests paramount, the third had no interest at all. It is, as we've seen, since the sole qualification required of an instructor was that he had to be a licensed pilot, it was not at all unusual for a pilot to be teaching his juniors to fly the day after he had himself qualified for his wings. The inevitable result was that the competence of most newly graduated pilots failed to meet the standards which were, should have been, required. That's not to say that the RFC had no capable pilots. It had, but they were either naturally gifted or lucky enough to have survived unscathed for long enough to have acquired a worthwhile amount of experience. Concerned at the lack of ability being shown by the many of the replacement pilots he was being sent while commanding 60 Squadron in the autumn of 1916, Smith Barry had analysed their failings. He used his conclusions to develop a training philosophy predicated on the use of an aeroplane with appropriate handling qualities and fitted with dual control and a comprehensive syllabus to be taught by experienced pilots who had themselves first been taught how to teach. Now, while the need for such an approach may seem self-evident today, it was a revolutionary idea at the time. It was decided to allow Smith Barry to test his theories, and he was posted home to command number one reserve squadron at Gosport, where he was given pretty much free rein to put his ideas into practice. Initially obliged to make do with the aeroplanes that were available, Smith Barry dispensed with the docile old Farman's and reorganized the rest so that the training sequence, when his school opened for business in January of 1917, involved students learning the basics on an Avro, followed by a brief consolidation phase on a BE2, before progressing to a Moran, and then, if you showed appropriate aptitude, to the Bristol Scout. You'll find a reference in a paper written by Smith Barry to the intermediate stage being flown on a Blériot. The Blériot was pretty much a museum piece by 1917, of course, and Smith Barry was all about moving forwards, not backwards. The explanation is that he was really old school, a graduate of number one CFS course, and when he said Blerio, he meant Blerio Experimental, a BE. He continued to refine his system, and by the spring, the old-fashioned BEs and Morans had been replaced by relatively modern one-and-a-half strutters, locally modified to have dual controls in the rear cockpit. By May of 1917, the flying element of the course involved about ten hours, dual and solo combined, on the Avro, two more on the Sopwith, and about five on the Bristol. Interestingly, he had not found it necessary to add any flying time. He clearly reckoned that 20 hours was quite sufficient to get a pilot up to speed. It wasn't about quantity, it was about quality. By this time, Smith Barry was confident that his system worked, and he explained his thinking in a pamphlet that was published in May of 1917. The foundation of his concept was the use of the relatively high performance Avro 504J, the 100 horsepower mono Avro, because it was a close approximation to the sort of aeroplane that the pupil would soon be flying in France. That 100 horsepower meant that pupils had from the outset to learn to cope with the gyroscopic effect of the large rotating mass of the engine and the propeller, so that they would anticipate and correct any tendency to swing on takeoff or drop a wing. The narrow undercarriage was another comparatively demanding characteristic of the Avro. The basis of the course involved dual and solo flying on the Avro, and that in itself was an innovation, perhaps the key to his philosophy. In the past, once a pilot had gone solo, he was more or less, more or less left to his own devices to practice his mistakes. Under Smith Barry's regime, he would fly with his instructor relatively frequently so that his mistakes could be detected and corrected, and he could be shown more sophisticated tricks of the trade, like formation flying and the full range of aerobatic manoeuvres. Not least among these was spin recovery, although there were exceptions to the rule, of course. In 1916, the spin was still regarded with considerable trepidation by many pilots, and the general attitude was that the best method of spin recovery was not to get into one. That tended to foster a better safe-than-sorry approach to flying, and that was absolute anathema to Smith Barry. He firmly believed that a pilot had to be the master of his machine, not frightened of it. He expected, indeed demanded, that his pupils should fly to the corners of the envelope. They were actually encouraged to throw their aeroplanes about so that they would get into unusual positions because, having been taught the effects of the controls and had them demonstrated, they would, should, be able to recover the situation. If they were hesitant to do this, they were likely to be chopped. And that was yet another innovation. Under the traditional system, you were pretty much allowed to continue flying unless or until you killed yourself. After all, with so little flying being dual, there was no real way to assess a pilot's level of competence. Under the rules of Smith-Barry's game, if you didn't come up to scratch, and that specifically included that willingness to fly with some abandon, you could be suspended. In fact, during the first four months of his experiment, Smith-Barry had found it necessary to chop 45% of the pupils he was sent from schools where they had previously flown farmers and 5% of those from schools that had been offering training in higher aviation. By May, he was advising that it would be wise to anticipate an overall washout rate of at least 50%, and he stressed that it was essential to play hardball. Persevering with no hopers was unfair to the squadrons in France and clearly did no favours to the individual. On a more optimistic note, however, he also wrote that, quote, it is extraordinary what moderate material can be made to do with enough dual control. A few moments ago I said that a pupil would fly with his instructor quite frequently and the operative word there was his. Under the new scheme it was envisaged that there would be a high degree of continuity permitting progress to be monitored. And there was more. Traditional practice was for the instructor to fly the aeroplane, typically a farman, with the pupil clinging on as best he could and trying to get a feel for the controls by ghosting the instructor on extensions to the control horns. In Smith Barry's Avros, the student sat in the driver's seat, that is the rear cockpit, while the instructor flew in the front seat. That way the student would not, as he put it, have to, quote, experience an embarrassing change of seat either just before his first solo or at any other time. Unfortunately, that meant that while he did have duplicated controls, the instructor in the front passenger seat of a 1916 model Avro had no instruments but Smith Barry believed and here I quote him again that a flyer who couldn't do without instruments would have less to teach than to learn and that was an interesting observation as it clearly advocates the importance of flying by the seat of your pants that's probably no bad thing at the time and for the next 15 years or so while flying in cloud was very much the exception rather than the rule when we did eventually start to indulge in cloud flying seriously in the early 1930s, of course, we found that the instruments were essential because your arse will lie to you. It's not your ass; it's your ears, really. That aside, there was one more major innovation. That's the technical one. And to begin with, apart from hand signals, the only way that an instructor could communicate was by throttling the engine and stalling the airplane so that he could shout. Hardly ideal, and the answer to that was the Gosport tube. One other thing, if a pupil crashed his aeroplane, that was deemed to be the flight commander's responsibility, which was a thought-provoking idea. He didn't necessarily have to carry the can, of course, but he would probably need to answer some searching questions. Technical failures aside, he'd need to be able to show that when one of his charges broke an aeroplane, it was through a misjudgment or a degree of incompetence considered to be acceptable for his stage of training. What would be less easy to explain away would be ignorance... Why hadn't he been taught about the problem? Or a fundamental lack of ability? Why hadn't he been chopped? Smith-Barry's philosophy could not prevent crashes, of course, and they continued to occur in training for the rest of the war. Indeed, fatalities in training exceeded those in combat. This is only a snapshot for one month, but it clearly shows that in June of 1918, for instance, 93 of the 173 airmen who died, that's 54%, did so while flying with the training squadrons and I suspect that only four of the ten who died in the Middle East were lost in action. Nevertheless, while it was always excessive the accident rate did begin to moderate during 1918. This graph shows the numbers of UK-based fatalities not crashes, deaths in training during the last 12 months of the war and it's apparent that a corner was turned in the summer of 1918. And that will have been largely a result of the RAF's wholesale adoption of smith barrys methods. But it's not really about numbers of accidents, because you can reduce the numbers by flying less. Zero if you don't fly at all. This graph uses much the same raw data, but it shows UK-based fatalities in training per 10,000 hours during the last year of the war. It looks a bit random, but if you superimpose a trend on it, it looks like this. So things really were beginning to improve. Incidentally, if you tried to plot today's accident rate on that, it would barely show. The traditional training system was still grinding on with pupils often passing through three units, which apart from the inappropriate involvement of a quasi-operational squadron was in itself inefficient compared to Smith-Barry's all-through approach. As early as February of 1917, the War Office had begun to consider restructuring the pilot training organization to make it an all-through system. And in July, impressed by the demonstrable success of what would become known as the Gosport system, Salmon directed that seven new flying training units should be set up on a trial basis. These new schools, which would be known as training depot stations, needed to be provided with competent staffs. So having shown that his methods worked, Smith-Barry's next task was to produce the necessary instructors. In August of 1917, therefore, his number one training squadron absorbed the other two training units at Gosport and their combined resources were used to create the School of Special Flying. This is the initial establishment, dated the 24th of August 1917. It provided a total of 51 officers and 487 NCOs and other ranks. School was organized as a headquarters and six flights, five of which trained instructors, while the sixth acted as a control group, and for a while, at least, it continued to train ab students. On the 14th of September, 1917, Gosport was visited by the GOC, now Major General Salmond, the training brigade having expanded to become a division by this time. Salmond saw a batch of ab students, albeit mostly ex-observers, whose skill and confidence was clearly way ahead of that being exhibited in the traditional schools. And he asked for a report on their progress. And it can be summarized summarized like this. The important things to note are the averages in red down the bottom. The average time to solo was six hours, but it could be as short as three or take as long as 11. Persevere. Secondly, they were now getting more total time on the Avro, an average of 28 hours, and more than 40% of that was being flown dual. That is to say, actually being taught something. Finally, as the right-hand column indicates, they had all successfully flown, while still at Gosport, a variety of current combat aeroplanes. But Gosport was now turning its attention to training instructors. And this is the first iteration of the school syllabus, although I don't think that it changed much. It looks a bit short, but this is not for ab initio instructors. These students were experienced pilots who were quite capable of flying competently, although most of them were doing it instinctively without necessarily understanding what they were doing. The function of the course was to bridge that gap, to link cause and effect, so that the next generation would be taught this from the outset. In short, the aim was to teach the method to qualified pilots to create what we might call QFIs, and terms like patter began to come into the lexicon. There was a degree of resistance at first from experienced combat veterans who thought they already knew it all, but after a fortnight at Gosport, they learned that they hadn't known the half of it and were completely converted to the new faith. The gospel, according to Smith & Barry, as originally spelled out in his May 1917 pamphlet, was republished verbatim in October as the 11-page General Methods of Teaching Scout Pilots. And armed with this, his apostles were sent out into the world to preach the word at the training units that were gradually being reconstructed to fit the new mold. The first of these new units were created by moving three individually numbered training squadrons to a fourth location where they were lost their identities to create a new series of training depot stations. The first of them was formed in July of 1917 from number four training squadron at Northolt, number 26 at Turnhouse, and 39 at Montrose, all three of which were posted to Stanford to create number one training depot station. Numbers two and three TDSs followed in August, and by the end of the year, there were seven of them. And the quality of the output was a considerable improvement on what had gone before. Now, while the new style training depot stations were being set up, the bulk of the training system was still operating to the old rules, with a typical pilot passing through two training squadrons before being posted to a pre-mobilization service squadron to gain their wings. At some stage, they'd be flying with one of these service squadrons when it was issued with its operational type and sent to France. Following the pattern that had evolved at Gosport, where the trial batch of Abinicio students had finished up flying combat aeroplanes, the new TDSs were going to be all through schools, permitting the ill-suited service squadrons to be taken out of the loop. Inevitably, the system was also expected to expand And during the next six months of 1917, it was projected that a notional requirement for 1,532 aeroplanes of all types was going to increase to 2,289. This is just trainers. Before that target was reached, however, the system was rationalized, and in November of 1917, it was announced that most of the motley collection of aeroplanes being used as trainers were to be progressively withdrawn to standardize on the Avro 504K although, as this edict says, operational types would still be required for the later stages. In view of the success attending the early TDSs, it was decided to restructure the entire training machine, and in pretty short order. So between April and August of 1918, all of the remaining training squadrons were combined to form new TDSs, a total of 72 of them by the time of the armistice, of which five were in Egypt, and two in France. The bulk of this transformation took place in July-August, and at that time, nearly but not quite, all of the pre-mobilization service squadrons were disbanded, in many cases simply by absorbing their resources into one of the new TDSs. From then on, each TDS provided a two-phase course and specialized in a specific role. So a student would undergo elementary and basic training on DH-6s, or increasingly Avro-504s, before completing the course on whatever type the school operated, camels, SE5As, DH9s, Bristol Fighters, RE8s, or whatever. Scampton is a typical example. This is how it looked in 1918, when it was number 34 TDS, having been formed in July by combining the resources of the three units that were already there, numbers 11 and 60 training squadrons and the potentially operational but pre-mobilization 81 squadron. Notionally, at least, 34 TDS could accommodate 839 personnel, 180 of whom were students, who were serviced by 54 household women. It trained single-seat fighter pilots, and as such, it was internally organized on a three-squadron basis and equipped with 36 Avros and 36 Dolphins. When a new squadron was required under the new scheme, it would be formed by taking an element from each of four separate TDSs and posting them to one of the newly designated mobilisation stations, Upper Hayford, Kenley, Witten, all of which were completely divorced from the training system. There they would become the headquarters and A, B and C flights of the new squadron. Technical personnel would be drafted in, brand new aeroplanes provided, and after an eight-week workup, the squadron would go to France." The first of these new units was No. 155 Squadron, which formed at Chingford on the 14th of September 1918. These units were to be allowed a two-month workup, so deployment was scheduled for the 21st of November. Peace broke out on the 11th, so No. 155 Squadron never went to France. So the idea of a TDS-based squadron never actually put to the test. Now, while the training depot stations represented the core of the new and far more professional approach to flying training, they were supplemented by an ever-increasing range of specialised schools that dealt with tactics and techniques like aerial gunnery, bombing, photography, navigation, torpedo dropping, armament, wireless, and so on. Which of these schools you would attend and which, in which order depended upon the role in which you were destined to operate. Now, as you can see, by the end of the war... The system had expanded out of all recognition. With the creation of the RAF, the Air Ministry assumed responsibility for policy through the Office of the Director of Training, Brigadier Hearson, with implementation and administration being devolved to the headquarters of the five geographical groups into which the Metropolitan Air Force had been divided. I draw your attention to this figure. There were now no fewer than 65 training depot stations in the UK, each one specializing in a specific role, day bomber, fighting scout, fighter reconnaissance, corps reconnaissance, seaplane, torpedo plane, fleet reconnaissance, night bomber, and so on. The training sequence to be followed by the majority of RAF personnel, including ground tradesmen, were eventually brought together in a single manual that was published in October 1918. The only significant omissions were the patterns to be followed by airship pilots and technical officers, and these were to be included in a second edition to be published at an early date. Peace broke out a few weeks later. That never actually happened. As you can see, rather than just being the general purpose aeroplane drivers of 1915, by the summer of 1918, there were 12 recognised specialist categories of pilot, and NCOs were only supposed to fly in three of these. So we can complete our table reflecting the evolution of the wartime training machine by adding this broad brush entry. And we can unwrap just one of the 12 pilot sequences to see what this complexity involved. This is what a pilot who finished up on a single-engine day bombers in late 1918 would have had to do. It started off with a couple of months of boot camp with the cadet brigade at Hastings, inoculation, vaccination, lots of shouting, square bashing, discipline, hygiene, PT military law and organisation, a little bit of signalling, map reading, lots of marching, lots of shouting. That was followed by six or seven weeks of ground-based aviation theory and practice at one of the schools of aeronautics, covering engines, instruments, rigging, navigation, photography, artillery and infantry cooperation, still the core functions. From there, he'd have gone to Uxbridge to spend a month at the armament school to learn about machine guns, synchronising gear, bombs and release gear, before going, now with the status of a flight cadet, he had been a cadet, to a training depot station where he would have spent the first 12 weeks learning to fly, accumulating at least 25 hours and covering spotter formation, forced landings, a little bit of cloud flying, maybe even a little bit of aerial gunnery. And at the end of this, he's classified as an A-class pilot. The second phase, another two months, would have been spent on the DH-4 or DH-9, doing more practical tactical stuff, cross-countries, reconnaissance bombing photography, air-to-ground gunnery, flying with a passenger, and so on. Now, that would have included at least another 10 hours, and at the end, he would have been rated as a B-class pilot and commissioned, now a second lieutenant. From TDS, he would have gone to one of the four fighting schools for three more weeks of practical flying to include strafing, air-to-air gunnery, more formation flying, and so on. The final stage was one at the schools of navigation and bomb dropping, most likely at Stonehenge, the others never really got going, where a final polish was applied on a course involving yet more bombing, gunnery, navigation, formation flying. And on completion of this course, he would be rated as a C-class pilot and allowed to put up his wings. This was in the specific case of a day bomber pilot, of course. The flying badge, by now RAF, not RFC, was awarded at the end of the final stage of whichever sequence you'd been earmarked to follow and this represents the mainstream there were other provisions for example you could put your badge up on posting to a squadron that was mobilizing or on being sent overseas as a replacement you could be short-circuited at any stage and plug a gap or on your co's recommendation 3 weeks after joining one of those rather odd inshore patrol squadrons equipped with dh6s you could be sent to one of those as a Class B pilot, or even still as a flight cadet as a Class A. In short, when it came to wearing wings, the overriding policy was that flying on ops trumped training. Never mind the course. If you're flying ops, you can put your badge up. Incidentally, like the Avro, the DH-6 was also flown from the back seat when it's flown solo. You'll recall that rather splendid RFC certificate that was, until at least late 1916, was issued on the direct authority of the CFS, and after that by the CO of your training wing. A little sadly, the scale and complexity of the much-expanded RAF training system meant that by the summer of 1918, this had become impractical, and this rather impressive document had been superseded by a scruffy note signed by the boss of your last school. Not even the boss in this case, just a mere captain signing on his behalf. Assuming no diversions or periods spent on hold and not allowing for any leave, the training of our bomber pilot would have taken about 11 months, during which he should have spent something like 60 hours in the air, and he may have been able to log a few more before eventually being sent to France. So to wind up, by the end of the war, the training facilities were becoming very sophisticated. This is a bombing range laid out at Lake and Heath, with full-scale representations of factories, railway yards, airfields, and so on, marked out on the ground, an extensive use was made of the camera obscura for simulated bombing. The pilots on the left are belting up ammunition before taking turns to ride the rail-mounted cockpit in the background. On the right is an observer doing the same thing, going backwards, of course. These facilities were actually in France, but had the Loch dune gunnery school project not being such an abject failure, something similar would have been available in the UK, and I suspect that something like this would have been built at home during 1919. Air-to-air gunnery was carried out against towed banner targets. Extensive use was being made of the Hythe camera gun. It wasn't supposed to end like this. And finally, this picture of about 50 Bristol fighters of number 1 Observer School of Aerial Gunnery provides some impression of the scale of the enterprise, by the end of 1918. Remember this one? To run this lot required more than 70,000 men. Where it says that there were, too small to see, there were 1,600 instructors there. They were not exclusively QFIs. That figure would have included folk teaching on the ground as well. And this was just in the UK. There were similar, albeit smaller, training organisations in Canada and in Egypt. What had the system achieved? When the war ended, there were more than 21,000 commissioned pilots, commissioned aircrew, named in the Air Force list. A little under 16,000 of them were pilots, plus about 2,000 NCOs. There were 10,000 aircrew under training, backed by another 21,000 cadets. So about 54,000 altogether, to which we must add the 9,000 who had died so by the end of the war, something like 63,000 people had passed through the training system or were still in it. Beyond that, it's difficult to quantify the capability of the late wartime training machine because it was always in a state of flux. and output was heavily influenced by the availability of daylight in winter versus summer and adverse weather in the dark months. But the planners had got a pretty firm handle on this sort of thing by the end of the war, and Brigadier Hearson was beavering away at the ministry churning out spreadsheets and projections. Looking at some work he was doing in October of 1918, he anticipated that the intake into the training squadrons, the TDSs, which had been running at about 1,400 per month since May of 1918, would begin to rise until it would reach 2,500 per month by May of 1919. He also had a fair idea on what the system could produce or not produce which is to say he was using forecast wastage rates based on practical experience. It's indicated to lose 10% of his cadets while they were still hanging about waiting to start training, another 10% once they did start, 5% at the academic ground school phase, few, if any, at the armament school, 20% in actual flying training, and 10% of the output would be retained, creamed off as instructors, so lost to the squadrons in France, although not to the RAF, and another 10% in those finishing schools. So, not counting the retained instructors, an overall loss rate of about 55%. And that overall picture is not too dissimilar to what was happening when I joined 40-odd years later. Finally, Hearson's papers indicate that for 1919, he was thinking in terms of 70 hours flying at the TDSs, to which you would then have to add the finishing schools, so folk were likely to be arriving in France with about a 100 hours under their belts as a matter of routine, three times what they would have had two years before. Now, this has all been presented as pretty much a tale of progress and success. Unfortunately, I do have to end with a health warning. Much of what I've said is what was intended. It was not always what was being achieved. Corners were still being cut, and there were certainly instances of people being signed off without having really ticked all the necessary boxes. That said, things were infinitely better in the autumn of 1918 than they had been at the beginning of the year, and as the new TDS system matured and stabilized, it would undoubtedly have realized its full potential in 1919. Thank you.
0: Gosh, thank you very much, Jeff. I hadn't realised how complicated the system had actually been. Um, we'd now like to open the floor for uh, questions and discussion. Uh, a couple of my colleagues are armed with microphones. Uh, if you'd like to raise a hand, uh, somebody will bring a microphone to you.
2: Thanks. Uh, what's your understanding of the role of the medical flight at Enden? Sorry. What's your understanding of the role of the medical flight at Hendon? I
1: won't bullshit you. I don't have a view on it. I don't know.
2: Um, well, if, you, if I can um, be indulged just for a minute or two. Sure. I researched um, the career of my great uncle uh, in the, the, the National Archives and got his file out. Uh, he went to the gunnery school at Hythe and went out uh, as an observer with five squadron for a couple of months, um, having previously been in France as an air mechanic uh, and then he was put forward for flying training, and he went to uh, a training school at RAF Tagcaster, and then he went to Shawbury. And at Shawbury, his flight commander said, "This man has no talent whatsoever. He's a danger in the air. He should be sent back to the trenches." And then he must have had a final check ride with his squadron commander, who uh, said, oh, no, "Actually, he's not quite that bad. I'll send him to the medical flights at Hendon." And he spent about three or four months at Hendon flying a variety of machines. And he eventually uh, finished that course, and the CO there said, um, recommended him as a ferry pilot for scouts. And apparently there were two grades of ferry pilots, one for uh, more docile machines and one for scouts. So he was graded ferry pilot scouts. And then uh, the last line of the CO's report said, unfortunately, he's in hospital at the moment. Um, and then in brackets and underlined in red ink, um it said venereal disease so he never actually went out to france or ferried anything and i think ended up at uh, um that place um near stonehenge that you mentioned lake down uh, but i, 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 I can not understand why they had a grading uh, um system at hendon called the medical flights and i wondered if you'd heard of it
1: no it's it's close up to, to me um there was certainly a different standard for uh, officer pilots and airman pilots um Flying Corps was not keen. It, it was an intuitive thing, really. You needed to be able to ride a horse, have your own horse to be a pilot. I mean, that was the sort of 1914 view. Um, but there was the facility for airmen to be trained. Um, and if you got your wings, then you became a sergeant. But very few of them got to France. A lot of them were used on those sort of ferry flight uh, things. I did a paper on uh, NCO pilots. Um, there were never more than about 1% or 2% Of the guys in France were NCO pilots right at the end towards the middle of 1918 there was some concern that they they were running out of officer material because most of them had been killed in the trenches and we were starting to scrape the barrel a bit Um, maybe we're going to use NCOs after all Haig sanctioned that for the two seat squadrons two seat bomber squadrons for instance and by the uh, September-ish of 1918 they actually got a f- several NCO pilots about 30 of them were actually sent to France and spread around a half a dozen squadrons to see how they got on um, and the reports from the squadron commanders are on file at Q broadly speaking they said these guys can do it but if they can do it we should commission them that was the sort of knee jerk reaction was you know uh, we, it's complicated having NCOs and officers on the squadron doesn't work they should all be officers if they can do it they're officers and if not they shouldn't be flying at all. Long-term forecasting, the way it was being planned by October 1918, looking manpower forecast into 1919, foresaw much wider use of NCO pilots than was, the, than was practiced in, up, up until then. But I, the medical flight at Hendon is, is, I don't know. But I can see why you'd go there with VD. Uh,
2: I wonder if you give
3: us a, a picture of... I'm just trying to get a feel for what it would be like um, for the squadron and for the guy who just arrived um, on a squadron in 1914, let's say. An average pilot, an average product of the then
1: training system, arrived without any preparation for wartime
3: flying, just yeah. handle an airplane. So what would the squadron do with somebody who'd just arrived?
1: Not a lot. Um You would get thrown in at the deep end. 1914, less of a problem. It it becomes a problem in 1915 and 16 when the the war begins to expand. There's a lot more squadrons and it's starting to eat people. So guys are being sent over there with 30 hours and I showed you pictures of airplanes bent on arrival. You got thrown in at the deep end. The CO might make you... If you're on a two-seater squadron, um, on 45, for instance, the boss would require you to fly three or four trips this side of the line's With an experienced pilot, then he'd give you an observer who'd flown before, um, and then you'd just get on with it. Um, There was a reluctance to put people up with, you know, consign an observer to a a tyro pilot until you got some, you know, he'd shown that he could do it. Um, Lots of guys were rejected on 45 Squadron. I just know a lot about 45 Squadron. Um, The CO would not infrequently. Get a new pilot, let him fly two or three trips and say this guy's no good and send him home. Um, so you, and that would save his life, in fact. Um, which is why Smith Barry said you needed to play hardball. The idea of just sending anybody across just because they can sort of fly an aeroplane doesn't actually help the squadrons and the guy gets killed. There's no point in doing that. But it was a numbers game and it was just had to keep the squadron the squadron's fully manned, and Trenchard had this philosophy of no empty chairs at breakfast. So, send him a pilot. He's not very good. Don't care. Send him a pilot. Uh, there was no real on-the-job training on the squadron. The machines, fairly primitive, the engines likewise. Um, presumably, some of the uh, losses were pure technical yes. cause. Yeah. And uh, Do you have approximate figures for that sort of thing? No, I don't. Um, but, yes, the, en- the engines uh, up to 1916 were a flight safety hazard in themselves and they were liable to stop. Um, and you could pull the wings off an aeroplane if you were over enthusiastic with it, which is what Smith Barry was about. Um, the accident rate at, at Smith Barry's school was quite high. Um, you know, he took a dim view if it was unnecessary, but he did want people to fly to the corners of the envelope and if that meant bending the odd aeroplane, that's fine. Um, and he got restrictions on low flying removed. He required his pilots to fly around below treetop height. Um, and the instructors at uh, Gosport became quite notorious for uh, stunt flying. But they, they did pull the wings off aeroplanes, and they did that at Gosport too. And Smith Barry would sort of shrug that off as, you know, that's what you have to do. So, yes, the, you know, the. the But I couldn't couldn't break down uh, figures on what were pilot error and which were technical defects. There was quite a sophisticated system by 1918 for tracking accidents and uh, what was causing them and analyzing the the statistics, and they could come up with problems with the DH-6 where they needed to redo the rigging of the wings, um, and they came up with things like that from analysing the accidents and the doing accident uh, in- inquiries. Um, there was a lot of problem in, in 19, early 1918 with SC5s, uh, with the leading edge of the wing, developing faults. And they detected that from analysing accidents and, and examining the wreckage. And after they'd lost about 20 of them, they nailed the problem and fixed it. So there was an analysis going on. It was not that primitive, but a huge change in in sophistication between 1914 and 1918. I mean, far more of a an advance than there was in the Second World War. I mean, they, they went in things that sort of flew about at 50, 60 miles per hour and wobbled along and finished up flying dolphins and camels and Bristol fighters, which are,
3: you know, two generations advanced. In the early days, formation flying was banned and then later on formation flying was required. How did they make the transition? Formation
1: flying was a knee-jerk reaction to, uh, how to defend the aeroplanes. Um, people went and did things by themselves until late 19, well, the middle of 1916, I suppose. And once you get, uh, the other guys start to get fairly sophisticated aeroplanes, and we are still flying BE2s and SOC with one and a half strutters, which can't cope with an Albatross or a Halberstadt the only thing you could do was fly in formation in the hopes that that would give you collective fire to defend the formation. On the other hand, what it did was removed any maneuverability. So you then drove along with your six aerop- 45 squadron flying one and a half strutters in 1917 flew in sixes. Um, and if you then got intercepted and mixed it in combat, if the formation broke up, then you were just flying your rather beat-up two-seat aeroplane against someone in a halberstad. And the things were loaded the wrong way the one, the one and a half strata started to lose a lot but the, was, flying formation was just a defensive knee-jerk reaction and the problem with that was that having got ourselves into that habit whilst the Germans had the upper hand in terms of fighter aeroplanes when we get to, uh, to Somme in, in April 1917 we start to get the RE-8 and the Bristol fighter and the next generation of aeroplanes but we're now stuck on the rails and we've got to fly in formation so the Bristol fighters go off, six of them in formation, and what, four get shot down? Because they weren't being flown as aeroplanes. You have to do it in formation. So we came away from formation again once we learned that. And the RE-8 was the same. The first time the RE-8s went in, um, again, at the Somme, they lost four out of six flying in formation. I think those were the figures. Um, so we had to relearn. You don't need to be in formation if you've got an aeroplane that can actually cope by itself.
0: Jeff, do we know much about the German
1: system of training at that stage? Yes, a bit. What I know about the German system of training is this, which is uh, an air intelligence report produced in September of 1918. You went to something like a uh, a cadet wing uh, called a, a a Fortschule, which is similar to the Oxford Reading thing, where you did a ground-based 12-week course on rigging, engines, Morse, all that stuff. And then there was a three-stage flying training course. Um, you went to a Fliegschule, which was a military flying school, which, oddly enough, was run under civilian contract. Uh, management got the three-phase system you could do the first two phases at one of these civilian contract schools. You could do all three phases at a military school. If you went to one of the civilian ones, if they could get you through the second phase, the management got 8,000 marks. That's 400 pounds. That's 1918 pounds. And remember it was 75 quid to get your aero club ticket? So it's 400 pounds if you could get a guy through the second stage of training. And that's how the schools made their money. The third phase, of the training, you had to go to one of the military schools. Other guys did the whole thing, at the, all three phases at the military schools. The first exam was pretty much like the Aeroclub ticket. It was ten figures of eight with spot landings with a dead engine. Uh, the second phase was ten landings from 1600 feet. This is, it's 500 meters. They've all been converted into feet for the British r- report. So ten landings from 1,600 feet, five landings from 3,250 feet, three engine failures. You flew around at 1,600 feet, 500 meters, and then a guy on the ground fired a rocket, at which point you had to shot the engine and then get down where you could. Three of those. Um, two 30-minute flights at 6,500 feet in a two-seater with ballast in the back and one one-hour flight with ballast in the back. Get that lot done. That's your second phase. If you were not already at a military school, now you had to go to one to do the third exam, which was five landings from 2,600 feet, five landings from 3,250 feet, plus some more uh, combinations of height and landings. Two 60-mile cross-countrys with ballast in the back, a 155-mile cross-country with an observer, a flight to 11,700 feet with an observer, a little bit of simulated combat with another sort of aeroplane, and some live air firing. The total of that flying phase was about three and a half months in good weather. Uh, in 1916, the edict had been you not to go to the front who had done at least six months of flying. By na- 1918, we're down to three and a half. Um, the report doesn't give us any indication of hours, but that sort of activity must have been of the order of 50 hours. Once you'd passed all those tests you then went to an artillery cooperation squadron to fly a C-type a two-seat, an RE-8 and you would fly 25 or 30 sorties and then you got your wings. In the German Air Force you earned your wings in combat. Um, Once you'd got your wings you could stay put and do the artillery cooperation thing or you could go to a bombing school or a fighter school if you've got the aptitude and become a fighter pilot or a go on to bombers. Um, there was one other wrinkle on that, which was you were not to go solo. Uh, you had to have 30 dual flights, is the way it's expressed in the report, before going solo. That cannot possibly be 30 flights. It must mean 30 landings. I mean, a, a circuit might take five minutes, 35, so is two and a half hours. That would make sense. But it can't possibly mean 30 sort of 45-minute sorties. So if that report is right, uh, that's, that's still pretty sophisticated. There's a lot, of, a lot of flying there, 50 hours, much the same as what we were doing really, just slightly different structure. But it's an all-through system, it's like the TDSs, um, and about 50 hours, and then you did your, 30, so- your uh, 30 sorties on a squadron before you got your wings. So 100 hours, much the same, I think.
3: How did the pilot training at the beginning of World War II differ from what it had got to by 1918? Not
1: a huge amount. Uh, Certainly right through the 1920s, the basic flying training requirements were were much the same. Um, 1940, the minimum flight... The the Queen's Regulation says, or King's Regulation says, you had to have 80 hours minimum of 80 hours to get your, your ticket. It was actually more than that in practice, but that was what KR still said. Um, content's still pretty much the same, but the, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction at the beginning of the war was to shorten flying training, trim out what was not necessary, and cut down even on flying hours um, a lot. You get a lot of statements about, you know, people in the Battle of Britain I'd only got 10 hours. They mean 10 hours on Spitfires, not I've only got 10 hours, which the way it's sometimes presented on the telly on uh, programs. Um, but having trimmed it back to the bone, um, the accident rate went up correspondingly. And at the end of 1941, uh, M.M. for Training um, writes a paper that points out that we are bending training airplanes uh, and operational ones in the OTUs at a phenomenal rate. We're writing off, um, I think it came out at something like 10 squadrons worth of aeroplanes being written off a month in accidents. Um, and what he's able to show is that the accident rate increases as you work your way through the system. You, you, you lose so many guys on tiger moths, and then you put them onto Harvard's, and the rate goes up, and then you put them onto Oxford's, and it goes up, and you put them onto Wellington's, and it goes up a lot more. They're just not coping. And the answer is you need more time. By that time, the Empire Air Training Scheme is starting to churn people out and there's enough fat in the system to be able to expand it. Um, And the aim of the game, uh, as agreed in early 1942, was that a a bomber pilot should have 350 hours before he gets onto a squadron. By the end of the war, they achieved that. But at the time, it was more like 250 and it just wasn't enough. Guys bent Wellingtons because they just couldn't cope yet. And that's much the same as 1917. It's putting guys in. It's the quantity versus quality thing. And whenever that happens, quantity always wins. Because you've got to have people on the squadrons doing it. You just can't sit and wait when there's a war to be fought. So you put people in who are not really competent. I wonder if you could comment on the training required for flying the seaplanes. And where was it done? Where was it done? Yes. Um. Calshot. For one, that's for sure. Um, The RNAS did that, of course. and I did make passing reference at the beginning to say the Navy were rather better at this than the Army was in the early days, largely because the Navy weren't in combat to the same extent that the Flying Corps was and losing people. So they didn't have to keep replacing them as fast as possible and therefore cut back on the training. So they had a lot more time... um, and guys did uh, basic flying trainings place at a place like Eastchurch. Church. Um, then they would go to Cranwell to do more ad- advanced training. And then if you were destined to go to uh, maritime airplanes, then you would probably go to Calshot and learn to fly uh, seaplanes. Um, and you got more hours and some quite exciting sort of flying too. I mean, by 1918, we'd got aircraft carriers and things. So guys were being twanged off gun turrets and ditching, or you know by the end of the war we were flying off the Argus and the Furious. So quite sophisticated naval flying. When in 1918, of course, it was all absorbed into the RAF and became they became TDSs. What what had been the Naval Flying School at Cranwell became Number One ump TDS and was absorbed into the into the, the overall RAF system. I don't think I'm going to add any more to that. It was slightly different, and you got more of it. You you got more hours in the Navy than you did in the Army prior to the RAF.
0: Is it true true that um, horsemen and sailors made, or people who had handled yachts and people who had ridden horses often made good pilots in the early days?
1: I don't think so. Um, in, in the Cross and Decay Journal about 10 or 15 years ago, we published, uh, a contemporary, uh, specification for, that, that was produced by the medical profession as to what you needed to select a good pilot. And it certainly went for things like, uh, you know, gotta play rugby, um, and sail a boat and, uh, ride a horse. But I, I don't think there's anything in that at all. Trying to project or, or forecast what We'll make a good pilot this is something that's, that's tested the Air Force for the last century. Um, you know, I had to go to Hornchurch and do peculiar aptitude tests to see whether I would make a pilot. And it said I would. And I didn't. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a black art. We get better at it all the time. But you always have a failure rate in flying training because whatever, whatever system you use, you just, you know, some guys just don't perform according to whatever the aptitude tests thought they would do. Um, I mean, one of them was you had, a, you were given a, a board with square pegs in, with a red and a blue top and a bottom, and you had to take each one out and put it back in through 180 degrees against the clock, and then they, they stop and they see how many you're done. And the guy next to me just picked his whole board up and just turned it round I'm not, I should think he'd make a pilot because he's devious.
3: <laughs> yeah. I'd just like to make a comment about the situation today, and I do mean today, that under some new pilot training regimes, particularly in places like China, there are pilots being trained to fly airliners who have never driven anything mechanical.
1: Yeah, I... I can recall when, when I was at, at pilot school, we had, uh, we had Nigerians who... I mean, the most complicated thing they'd dealt with was a bicycle. Um, we had Sudanese. I was at Turnhill flying Piston Provost, and it was a 120-hour course. Um, the, the Sudanese Air Force had bought some Piston Provosts, and this was their first aeroplanes, and they sent half a dozen guys across to learn to fly. And uh, they were around when I was being trained, and they would get to 120 hours, and they still hadn't done this, they hadn't done that bit, and they hadn't done that bit, and they would ring up the Sudanese embassy and say, this size guy's going to be chopped, or we can give him some more hours. Do you want to pay for that? And the Sudanese embassy would say, yeah, give him another 100 hours. And the guys were taking 250 hours to do a 120-hour course. Um, because, you know, the mechanical and the sophistication of things for a guy with no background in that was quite difficult to adjust to. And I suppose that was much the same as uh, a guy in 1914 who was used to a horse, and they said, go fly an aeroplane. Odd thing to do, really. We understand aeroplanes, but, you know, in 1914 you didn't really, did you? And you wouldn't do in in Nigeria or the Sudan in the 1950s.
0: Can I now ask Kit Mitchell to propose a vote of thanks, please?
3: Thank you for giving us an absolutely wonderful lecture. I think the RAF is recognized widely for the quality of its training today, and it was really great to see how this evolved in the beginning. Also horrifying to see the poor training that pilots were expected to go to war with in the early days, and again in World War II. Um, And the inevitable losses of life as a result of that, both through accident and enemy action, Um, it's really been tremendous to see how a system developed from a very primitive beginning to something that was really pretty good at the end. Um, And also to have your really super side comments that... Only a pilot who'd been through this, could, was it could be able to make. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us tonight and giving us such a good evening. And can I ask you to join me in thanking Jeff?